OpenStack is an open source cloud operating system. Today's guest is John Purrier, a founder of OpenStack and the CTO of Atomic Software. OpenStack is a complex piece of engineering, but it is really important, so this introduction is a little longer than usual. To give some context, cloud service providers like Amazon and Google and Microsoft, they all provide infrastructure as a service and platform as a service. Infrastructure as a service gives developers access to virtual machines, servers, network infrastructure, and platform as a service is the software that runs on top of that infrastructure as a service. This includes things like Amazon DynamoDB, uh, Microsoft Azure Machine Learning, Google App Engine. So platform as a service is great for developer productivity, but it can also be very expensive. Developers can get locked into a specific cloud service provider, and this puts all the leverage in the hands of an individual cloud service provider. An ideal economic future for developers would have reduced compute costs with better free market economics, but that is difficult to achieve with platform-as-a-service providers enforcing lock-in and increasing the switching cost between services, because if you're on platform-as-a-service on top of uh, you know, Amazon um, Amazon Web Services, it can be really difficult to switch to Google, for example. So that lock-in uh, is not is not great for the for the developers, and that's where OpenStack comes in. OpenStack is an open source platform as a service. You can run it on EC2 or Google or Rackspace or wherever you want. The bright future uh, is OpenStack. Um, OpenStack, you know, can provide a future in which cloud service providers have to improve their platform as a service in order to compete with OpenStack. So cloud service providers will will have to improve their platform as a service, first of all, in order to compete with the free offerings of OpenStack. And they'll also have to lower the cost of their infrastructure as a service um, because they're going to have to compete with each other for OpenStack users. So if I can run my OpenStack on Google or Amazon or on Azure, then as a cloud service provider, as an infrastructure as a service provider, you're going to have to compete with these other infrastructure as a service providers um, to get me as a, uh, as a customer. So this has already been a long introduction, but if you're a fan of Software Engineering Daily, we really want to know how to improve. So please take five minutes to fill out our listener survey. There's a link to the survey in our newsletter and on our website, softwareengineeringdaily.com. So uh, please check it out and let us know what you want to hear more and less of. OpenStack is an open source cloud operating system. John Purrier is a founder of OpenStack and the CTO of Atomic Software. John, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. What is OpenStack? Well, OpenStack is a, it's a as you said, it's an open source project. Uh, it's a cloud operating system. Uh, originally, the idea behind OpenStack was to create an open source uh, infrastructure as a service platform. And, uh, you know, at the original founders were Rackspace and NASA. Uh, and the two original projects were a compute uh, project and a object storage project. Of course, since then, you know, in, in the, uh, the, I guess the last six years, uh, the numbers of projects and the scope of the projects has, has grown uh, well beyond that original vision. To level set for some of our listeners who may not know the term, what is infrastructure as a service? Uh, yeah, so the way to think about infrastructure as a service is instead of going out and buying your own computers, uh, finding a building, getting a lease, uh, hooking up power and air conditioning and running a, a data center, you're essentially leasing that from somebody else, right? So um, while you can have projects that are private infrastructure as a service, when we talk about uh, IaaS or infrastructure as a service, uh, most people are referring to public clouds like Amazon, Azure, or Google Cloud, right? So the, the simple way of thinking about it is I'm essentially renting servers uh, from somebody else. So we have these these cloud public clouds like Amazon, Google, uh, Microsoft Azure, for example. Why do we need an open source cloud operating system? 
Well, that's uh, that's a great question, and uh, I guess the question could be: Why do we need any open source versions of uh, proprietary implementations? And I would I would argue that uh, first of all, it's it's just good for the industry and the ecosystem, but in particular around cloud. Um, cloud is is very collaborative, right? It's a is a um, uh, a coming together of uh, a lot of different companies and organizations, uh, and the, the ability to collaborate collaboratively build um, a, a large project like this is is very powerful. Very few companies in the world could launch and sustain a project that's as large as OpenStack is today. And uh, I would argue that having um, uh, the last I saw, there were over 30,000 uh, members of the OpenStack Foundation contributing toward the um, betterment of the software is, is a great thing. So it is this open source infrastructure as a service uh, operating system. Could you talk about an example of a company that uses OpenStack today so we perhaps have a prototypical uh, use case that we can maybe refer back to during during the show if we need to. Yeah, there there are you know uh, several, uh, and when I, when I say several, uh, hundreds of companies that are using OpenStack today in one form or another. Uh, a couple that are are you know kind of um, poster children, I would say. Uh, it, one is, on the commercial side is Walmart. Walmart uh, is um, using OpenStack inside their their data centers as they build out their e-commerce systems. Uh, The other one is CERN, the research laboratory that does the the large-scale collider uh, over in Switzerland. And uh, for anybody who's been to any of the recent OpenStack design summits, uh, both of these companies have have come forward and and talked about their use cases uh, and uh, demonstrated how they're doing large-scale deployments of OpenStack. Are these organizations, are they run by people that have, so they have their own servers and they uh, they run OpenStack on top of it, or are they leasing cloud hosting that they put OpenStack on? Uh, well, it's a great question, and the answer is, depending upon the organization, they may do uh, either of those or both. Um, so the you know kind of typical um, installation when you think of OpenStack is an on-premises cloud, right? So a private cloud, if you will. So I have my own data center, and uh, I'm probably in virtualized, right? So I you know, over the last 10 years or so, I, I virtualized using VMware or other virtualization technologies. And <clears throat> I really want to provide, you know, more service, more automation, uh, and, and more uh, responsiveness to my, my customers, my internal customers. So cloud really is an automation layer over the top of virtualization, right? So it allows me to, you know, kind of control on-demand, <clears throat> excuse me, on-demand um, spin-up of, of resources, whether they be virtual machines, uh, storage systems, networks, uh, et cetera, right? So, so when you think of OpenStack, most people are, are looking at the use case where it's used uh, inside of a data center. Now, it can also be, um, uh, and with no, no changing kind of model, it can be managed by somebody else, right? So if I was an uh, enterprise and didn't want to run my own data centers, but I, you know, uh, contracted one of the managed hosting companies and said, you know, please run my uh, infrastructure on my hardware networks and and so on. Um, that OpenStack is also appropriate in, in that case. Um, and then, of course, uh, there are some uh, cloud service providers that run OpenStack uh, and are essentially competing in the you know, uh, cl- the public cloud space against Amazon, Microsoft, Google, et cetera, running OpenStra- uh, OpenStack. So now we should get into how OpenStack works. We have a higher level perspective for some of the use cases and how it's deployed at a high level. You mentioned the term virtualization. 
What is virtualization? Well, back in the old days, uh, you used to buy a computer and you would put an operating system on it and then you would run one or many applications on that operating system. Um, about uh, 15 years ago or so, um, this, this uh, idea of virtualizing the uh, servers, which really grew out of you know techniques that have been around for a long time in the mainframe and, and mini computer world, uh, was brought to you know kind of PC level servers. Uh, and the idea behind virtualization is I can take a, you know a single computer, uh, I can put a, a hypervisor on it, and what the hypervisor does is it abstracts the the underlying hardware. And then it presents the ability to run multiple uh, stacks of software uh, from the operating system up independently. Um, so essentially, I could take my one physical computer and make it look like two or four or eight uh, virtual uh, computers. And if I'm uh, a user of those computers, they don't look any different than if I was you know, talking to a box that I could physically touch. So what is the relationship, in a little more detail, what is the relationship between the hypervisor and the hardware that it sits on top of? Yeah, so the, the, the hypervisor is, is a layer of software that knows what the physical hardware looks like. He knows what it, he, <laughs> I call it he, uh, it knows, <laughs> it, it knows what the, fi- this is not a, this is not a gender normative podcast. <laughs> okay. So he or she knows what the, uh, the hardware looks like underneath where, whether it be, uh, the CPU, whether it be the storage system, whether it be the network, um, and then it uh, essentially creates driver level endpoints that can be accessed by a variety of different um, virtual machines. Okay, and just to drive home this, uh, what the hypervisor is a little more. Talk a little more about the. We talked about the. Or you just referred to the the relationship between the hypervisor and the hardware below it. Talk a little more about the relationship between the hypervisor and the virtual machines that it manages. Yeah, so so the uh, the hyper, uh, hypervisor allows you to spin up virtual machines, and uh, those virtual machines look and act just like physical machines. Um, you have drivers, uh, virtualized drivers, that provide the same services that a physical machine would would do in terms of access to the CPUs, uh, data storage, networks, and uh, et cetera, right? So, so it really is a translation layer between this virtualized environment and the physical hardware, and it arbitrates uh, requests from the, a variety of different virtual machines down to, obviously, the physical hardware. Perfect. So now that we have an idea of hypervisors, virtual machines the hardware that all this is sitting on top of, OpenStack takes a collection of hypervisors that are spread across a data center or across multiple data centers, and it turns this collection of hypervisors into a shared pool of resources. Why is this useful? Well, uh, well, uh, the way you described it was was very good. Um, A cloud really is an automation layer over virtual machines, right? So... um, if you take a look at the the history of, of data centers in the enterprise, you know we started off, you know, oh man, twenty years ago with client server architectures, uh, and then about fifteen years ago we had kind of the rise of virtualization, uh, and pretty much over the last you know ten years or so, most uh, serious uh, computation shops have virtualized. Um, that didn't solve the problem in terms of delivery to the organization, right? So it's still, you know, the processes that, that enterprises had for, uh, let's say, a developer requesting a virtual machine or a developer requesting um, a group of machines uh, was still back in the submit a ticket, have somebody go into a console or a command line, <clears throat> create the, the resources, send it, you know, you know, update the ticket, send email back. And this could take, you know, several days. Um, uh, about 
uh, 10 years ago, uh, Amazon started Amazon Web Services. And, you know, the, the you know, key service at the time was EC2. EC2 essentially was an automated way of getting virtual machines instantly. Uh, and this is this is very revolutionary. So I could take my credit card, I could swipe it, right? Um, so that the, the, uh, obviously, so they could charge me, and then immediately I could say, I want ten virtual machines. I want them to have this much memory, this much disk. Uh, go, and within three minutes or so, those machines would be up and running, and I could use them. Inside the enterprise, it's taking longer to get to that, but what? OpenStack and what cloud software does is it provides that level of automation over the top of virtualization. So it's it's really a manager and orchestrator of virtual machines and resources. Okay, so that's that's a great uh, a great description. So you're, I think to reiterate what you just said, with this shared pool of resources, you get a a big this big pool and there is an interface on top of it that allows the developer to not really have to worry about what's going on when the developer says, I want to spin up, uh, I want to spin up some, some amount of compute. Uh, and I don't want to have to worry about, um, you know, a lot of this configuration beyond the, the minimum that I should have to worry about as a developer. I can just specify what I want and this huge pool of resources will figure out under the hood, uh, uh, what to give me in actuality, and I will get a virtualized, um, perfect uh, plate of of resources that I need. Yeah, that, yeah, that's that's a, a really good way of looking at it. As a developer, right? I used to have to. If you go back two generations, I used to have to go buy a physical server, un unbox it, right? Plug it in, put the operating system on it, put my tools on it. You know, find a place under my desk. Uh, and then when we moved into the virtual world, uh, all that got kind of got taken care of for me. But it, I still had a one to one relationship with the virtual machine uh, with cloud. I just ask for the resources that I want and I don't care if it's, you know, uh, on machine one or machine a thousand inside of the, the data center. Um, as a developer, I just want access to the resources. And, and uh, so we've really abstracted away the developer uh, having to care about um, a lot of the, the provisioning pieces. And to put a finer point on this, the shared pool of hypervisors that is managed by OpenStack, these hypervisors can be of different types. They can be Zen or KVM or VMware or Windows Server but the user interacts with those hypervisors through a consistent interface of OpenStack. Why is this advantageous? Uh, it, because you, in the real world, you don't necessarily have a homogeneous set of, of anything, right? You may have uh, com, you know, physical computers from a variety of different sources, um, you may have the, you know, the, uh, uh, the original provisioning may be different. You may actually have them on different types of networks. Um, so the real world is messy. Uh, and what OpenStack does is it provides a, a abstracted interface over the top of the messiness and then manages uh, the complexity underneath it so that uh, as a developer or really as an operator or sysadmin of the system, I don't really need to worry about that. The system will take care of it for me. Do OpenStack users in practice, do they tend to have a heterogeneity of these different server types like KVM and VMware and Windows Server, like all, all within the same cluster? Uh, I think that what we're finding is, is that it's not necessarily that they have a lot of them, but uh, most people have VMware in some form inside their data center. So uh, they, they kind of start from there. And whether or not they want to use the, the VMware um, hypervisor as the OpenStack uh, standard um, is really up to them. So what we're, what we're actually seeing is, is that 
there's a side-by-side -side of the VMware virtualized environment and the Greenfield environment when people are buying new servers, racking and stacking and creating you know, um, newer network topologies and things like that. And in that case, it does, it does um, provide a great value to be able to say, hey, we don't have two separate cloud systems we, we actually have one, it's the OpenStack one, and it bridges uh, the, those two different architectures. When a hypervisor is sitting under this consistent layer of OpenStack, along with other hypervisors, are there any particular specs that the hypervisor has to adhere to, like in terms of storage or CPU or other characteristics? Uh, it's a good question. Um, I don't know if it's if it's really relevant. Um, so uh, yes, there's, there's probably some some minimum uh, amount of, of things that you have <laughs> you have to have, right? But uh, if you take a look at you know kind of any of the modern uh, hypervisor virtualized virtualization systems, whether it be, you know, VMware or Hyper-V or, you know, whatever it is, um, they, they are all good enough to, to be driven by OpenStack. And, and OpenStack can also drive uh, bare metal boxes as well. So, within that, so just a bare metal box essentially is a box without a hypervisor. So to ask kind of a, an absurdist question, um, what would keep me from running... Uh, OpenStack across a huge cluster of Raspberry Pis. You you absolutely could do that. And uh, if I was going to set that system up, I would not put a hypervisor on on the Pi device because it's so small. Um, but it, you would essentially run those as bare metal boxes. But each of those would be individually addressable um, compute endpoints uh, to the OpenStack scheduler. Hmm, that's that's really interesting. So, do you think, uh, not to get too far off course, do you think we could have a future where I have like a data center in my closet and it's just like things that are the size of a Raspberry Pi and I can run huge MapReduce jobs on them? Uh, absolutely. And if you if you're you know kind of paying attention to the the uh, the hotness around Docker and containers, right? So it, it that's really driving us, helping to drive us towards that future as well because. With containers, uh, they're much more lightweight than virtual machines, and you can get a lot uh, higher density uh, inside a, a, any particular configuration. So, if you, if you, you know, for instance, if we took a, a Raspberry Pi device um, and we, we considered that a bare metal box, and then we stacked a whole bunch of Docker containers inside of it, think about the you know kind of compute power you could have there, and then cluster them out. Um, underneath a, an orchestrator like OpenStack. Yeah, so this is getting pretty far removed from the nature of OpenStack discussion, but uh, I've done a number of interviews with people where I've I've ended up asking the question like, when when you really start to containerize your infrastructure and you, you're, you're using Docker, um, to what degree do, do we get, uh, like, what is the effect of the economies of scale when we can containerize our architecture uh, with more modern technologies, whereas maybe five or ten years ago we were uh, doing virtualization? Like, do you have any, I don't know, statistics or or um, numerical projections for how economical it actually is? Uh, well, I can uh, answer that, I guess, anecdotally, right? So... Um, after I, you know, I ran the engineering team at Rackspace, and you know that's where we we founded OpenStack with NASA. I uh, then went to Hewlett Packard and stood up a public cloud uh, based on OpenStack. My next gig was a, a company called AppFog, which was a platform as a service company based on Cloud Foundry. And uh, this is, you know, yet another level of abstraction where for, for a, uh, a developer, it's a, um, it's a wonderful environment, right? Because you just worry about the logic and the components that you want in your application. And then you push it into the system and then all the operational pieces get, get taken care of for you. 
Um, under the covers of any PaaS system, uh, they're all containerized, right? So if you take a look at OpenShift or Cloud Foundry or you know what have you, all of these systems are running containerized systems. Um, at AppFog, we were taking uh, uh, virtual machines that we were running in a variety of different public cloud infrastructures like Amazon, Rackspace, HP, etc. And we were slicing those virtual machines up um, uh, to run containers. So you could take an 8-gig uh, virtual machine and run you know, 8 to 10 uh, different containers inside of that. So, so you get much better economics, you get much better density, right? So if you have an application that's 512 uh, meg, you don't need to take an entire 8-gig virtual machine just to run that. You can, you can uh, stuff more applications into the same space. And, and so what we're seeing is, is with, with Docker and containerized systems, um, uh, it's really an inside-out platform as a service. So Docker Inc. Uh, basically took the, the containerized system inside their PaaS uh, and they separated it out and they you know, made it standalone, put an API on top of it, and they've done a, a lot of really good things in, ter- uh, in terms of collaborative development uh, for developers and containers. And then what we're doing is, is uh, with these containerized systems, we're now having to rebuild all the stuff that made PaaS operational, like monitoring systems and health checks and, and things like that. So it's a, it's a really uh, interesting world. But the, the short answer to your, to your question is, is that um, I think that you're, you know, you're going to get uh, 5 to 10x uh, better utilization. Uh, and of course, that means and requires that our schedulers are are more intelligent as well. Mm. Okay, great. So let's we'll get into the discussion of schedulers a little bit later. But let's let's um, let's kind of zoom out to a little bit of a higher level. Um, OpenStack has a set of design tenants, and the two main goals of OpenStack are scalability and elasticity. And to somebody who doesn't have a whole lot of uh, experience with building infrastructure as a service software, scalability and elasticity, these may sound like the same thing. So what is the difference between scalability and elasticity? Uh, That's a great question, right? So if you take the scaling question first, it really is the ability to get resources on demand, right? So let's say I build an application uh, and I'm selling something. And, you know, uh, you know, I'm running and I have a certain amount of traffic to it. And suddenly it's Christmas time. Right. And all the traffic to my website goes up, you know, 10x. You know, I either have to have over provisioned earlier to account for the fact that now I have 10 times the amount of traffic or when that traffic shows up, I want to scale out, right? So I want to add resources on demand. Uh, so that's really what scaling is. And, and the, um, the goal, the tenet of, of OpenStack is to be massively scalable, right? So a, a OpenStack system can run hundreds of thousands uh, of virtual machines um, in, in a cluster, uh, elasticity really is is very similar in that you know you want to be able to grow your your resource pools, but you also want to be able to shrink them, right? So, uh, and this is actually a very key part of of cloud, right? So, if it was just add add add, that would be one thing. It would be uh, interesting, but the the fact that I can actually increase my resource pool on demand and I can shrink it on demand. Right, and I can do scaling uh, both up and down. is is really what uh, what we mean when we say uh, it's elastic. Another design tenet of OpenStack is that any feature that limits the main goals of the service, which are elasticity and scalability, any any example of of, of a feature that limits those main goals must be optional and. I think this is interesting. I think it's actually really important to have these uh, these principles laid out because 
it's such a massive open source project and you need to have some sense of alignment among the team, distributed team. But what is an example of a feature that had to be made optional within OpenStack because it potentially limited scalability or elasticity? Uh, if you take a look at uh, the original networking options that we had, right? So we had, you know, kind of flat networking, uh, and we had a variety of different modes uh, of networking that you could choose. Um, that was, you know, interesting. But where networking got really interesting was when this software-defined networking uh, kind of came came into being. Um, and really spearheaded within OpenStack by NYSERA, who, you know, they were later uh, acquired by VMware. But, you know, so suddenly we had two different networking systems, right? And you needed, as, a, as an operator or a, uh, uh, somebody who's actually going to deploy OpenStack, you kind of had to choose between the two of them. And if we, as a, as a group, had a policy of saying, okay, you you must now use software-defined networking versus versus the built-in networking modules, um, I think that would have really retarded adoption. But the fact that you could choose and they, you know, they were optional components uh, made it much easier for adoption because people could choose the the architecture and the mode and the style of deployment that uh, that they were comfortable with. So everything in OpenStack should be asynchronous according to the design tenants. Why is asynchronicity so important? Uh, if you make make things synchronous, uh, you have contention and you get blockage and you your performance goes down. So it's all around. It's all about throughput. It's all about being able to create uh, computing systems, data centers, uh, etc., that you can put a service level agreement uh, on. Uh, that's particularly important for enterprise adoption, uh, where you know the uh, enterprise IT department is making you know an SLA promise to the business, you know that there'll be uh, only so much downtime, that there's certain performance levels that are that will be maintained, etc. Right, so. If in fact you have synchronous places in your um, your architecture or your workflows or your systems, that's where things are going to bog down, and, and uh, that's where you kind of lose control. So it really is all about uh, maintaining performance, uptime, uh, and scale. OpenStack also emphasizes the importance of a shared nothing architecture and. To somebody who doesn't really understand this term, it might sound kind of strange. Like, if you have an architecture where nothing can be shared, how do you convey information from one piece of the architecture to another? Mm -hmm. So maybe you could define the term shared nothing architecture. Yeah, so uh, if I have a shared architecture, you know, I may be using uh, uh, a memory a chunk of memory or a chunk of disk to maintain state. Um, and this gets very, you know, kind of problematic when you have virtual machines that are what are called ephemeral, right? So a virtual machine can disappear on you. It can go away at any time. So you have to architect your system such that it's okay if virtual machines go away. Um, if in fact you're using uh, shared state and you you know you're dependent upon you know this virtual machine to maintain its view of the world and it goes away, that's a problem. The way you get around this is you use things like message buses, right? So uh, everybody's communicating on a message bus. You can subscribe to certain events, uh, so you see you know state changes and things like that. You have your each each virtual machine. Uh, has its own view of the world, and uh, it operates on that view independent of everybody else's view. So could you give an example of 
uh, how it, so if the system, let's just, just to, just to drive this, I mean, that was a great explanation, but just to drive this Mm -hmm. point home further, could you give an example of like, hypothetically, if OpenStack would have been foolishly designed in a way that shared state was easy to do, um, why would shared state be dangerous? What is, what is an example of maybe an application level bug that could, that could propagate from a, a situation with shared state? If we're sharing state, right, I am dependent upon the the thing that's maintaining the state to be correct. All right, so uh, let's say I, I'll give you a good example. Um, when I first went to Rackspace um, <clears throat> to to do the, the, the cloud engineering work, uh, they had a compute infrastructure based upon a company that they had acquired called Slicehost. Uh, and they had built a, an object storage system um, internally, right? When they, you know, in the, before my time, but when they went to launch the object system uh, in the first week, it took a lot of traffic and it went down and it took them uh, several days to bring it back. The problem in the design of that object storage system was they had put a centralized database, right? So, you know, as your uh, storage system, you know, you've got, you know, many, 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 many disk drives. um, And if you're routing all your traffic and it's a requirement that you do a synchronous call to a database for each uh, transaction, um, you can see how your scale is going to be impacted. The more people that are trying to talk to the system, the more contention you're going to have on that shared resource and the worse off you're going to be, uh, which, which we found uh, uh, to our chagrin. Now, the good news is, is that we learned our lesson from that, rebuilt from scratch the object storage system, and that's the system called Swift that's in OpenStack today. Okay, great. Let's talk about eventual consistency. OpenStack is designed with eventual consistency in mind. Could you define the term eventual consistency and describe why that term is relevant to OpenStack? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's absolutely a a, a key concept for large scale distributed systems, right? So, the the idea behind this is is that if you have a, a lot of, of systems, I'll, I'll take the storage system again as, as an example. So let's say I build out my storage system and I've got 10,000 disk drives, right? And the way that object storage systems work uh, uh, in, in you know, some instances is uh, by um, doing redundant copies, Right, so um, I write a piece of data. It actually gets splatted across the ten thousand drives, and there's at least three copies. Right, so if at any time a drive goes away, I know I've got uh, two other good copies that I can kind of kind of recover that from. Now, uh, the the idea though is is that uh, we have latencies in, in systems and we have delays in systems. Right, and so. Um, if I've got a program that's looking at a particular bit of storage and I've got another program that might be geographically dispersed, but on the other side of a replication, uh, topology in the storage system, uh, at any point in time, they both think they're looking at file foo, but foo for some amount of time before the replication, uh, occurs is not the same on both sides. Right? So, um, and that's okay. And that's what that's the, the whole idea behind eventual consistency. Eventually, all everything will come uh, back and be consistent as the replication works. But we have to uh, accept the fact that in some time windows, um, it, you know, uh, program A and program B will get different results querying what they think is the same um, storage object. And OpenStack has some degree of tunable consistency also. Um, could you also explain that term and explain how the consist- the level of consistency within OpenStack can be tuned? 
Yeah, th- this is something that actually that was added after my time. But um, the tighter that you bring the, the consistency requirements, right? Um, you, you know, essentially what you're, you know, you're trading off resiliency, right? So um, you could actually make a system that is entirely consistent, right? So, so you know, if we take eventual consistency on one end and always consistent on the other, um, you can build systems that operate in either of those modes, right? With, with OpenStack, um, the original design parameters for some people were not um, adequate, right? And this is a great thing about open source. So as part of the, the, the project, the folks that said, you know what? Um, I don't necessarily need uh, this many copies, but I need them to be in tighter sync, right? I need my those two programs that think they're looking at the same storage object to all, you know always get the same answer if they ask the same question. Um, that was added in um, as a normal part of the open source development uh, process. So now that we're talking about open source, could you give me an idea of how the open source community of OpenStack works and how people collaborate with each other, how the open source uh, progress um, uh, progresses. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and that, I, I love this topic. Um, I think that uh, open source, you know, is, is tr- a tremendous movement. I think that uh, a lot of the innovation in how we collaborate collaboratively build software has come from uh, projects like OpenStack and uh, actually the the requirements that, you know, large communities of folks that are spread across many countries and cultures, across many different time zones, all collaborating on, you know, uh, a single project has forced a lot of innovation to happen. And I'm, I'm seeing uh, the results of the, that innovation come back into things like uh, how enterprises are building software, how they're uh, um, building their, their continuous delivery pipelines, um, how they, they integrate automation uh, into that, uh, you know, continuous integration, continuous delivery pipeline. So uh, with, with OpenStack, uh, we started with a, a base set of tooling uh, you know, around uh, version control and um, uh, code reviews uh, and test automation, right? And over the years, this has gotten very, very sophisticated. So, so that um, uh, you know, you have your continuous integration piece, you've got your continuous uh, testing piece, you've got your continuous deployment pieces. Um, and the tooling around that has has um, actually grown up out of other open source projects like Jenkins uh, as well. Um, the, the original um, uh, team that was building, you know, kind of the tools for how we managed our source code, how we built it, um, how we did continuous delivery, uh, worked for me at Rackspace, uh, also worked for me at, at Hewlett Packard, and uh, those guys did a tremendous a tremendous job for the open source community. And, and through that kind of collaborative effort, that's how a project like, like OpenStack can actually be as effective as it is. It's got a, a good set of tooling, a good set of processes. Everybody knows what the rules are. Um, and if you don't play by the rules, right, then, you know, you, you, you just can't affect the community. The community says, you know, no, thank you. We don't, we don't want people that don't play by the rules. Uh, and then there's a, a very high level of communication uh, and the ability to get your voice heard, right? So these are not static, you know, uh, written on the tablets, come down from the mountain uh, processes. This is a, a living, uh, breathing, or, you know, organic process that's always being reviewed. Anybody can make suggestions. Anybody can, you know, join the conversation, um, and I think it makes better software. And speaking of processes that make better software, testing is very important to OpenStack development. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about how 
testing occurs, uh, what the best practices are for you know some open source committer who who needs to commit um, he wants to commit something and he has to commit tests associated with it and mm-hmm. and maybe some of the challenges that are associated with testing a big distributed system like OpenStack. Yeah, it's a great topic. Um, you know, you as you mentioned, you have to start off with a, a policy and a process set of rules that says when you check in code, you check in test with it, right? So that's that's just you know kind of uh, you will not pass a code review if you don't have tests. Um, how you can actually validate is is a much more interesting um, uh, question and. In some ways, uh, the distributed continuous integration process um, really helps here, right? So you can actually set up a mesh, and and this is how uh, the original Jenkins uh, system was set up for OpenStack, where you kind of have a master, but then you've got these slave uh, CI systems um, that can be tuned for particular... Um, scenarios, right? So, for instance, uh, at Hewlett Packard, when we were standing up OpenStack, we had um, a particular data center topology, right? We, you know, we obviously were using HP Gear, HP Networks, uh, HP Racks, um, etc. So, the what our topology looked like was not the same as anybody else's in the world, and so. We wanted to, it was in our own best interest to set up a slave integration server so that with each check-in that came into Trunk uh, for OpenStack, um, it kicked off the continuous integration process, you know, go through like the basic unit test, but then it would also then farm out the work to the slave CI servers, including ourselves. And we would run through our, you know, the testing on our particular configuration. And then we would be able to tell, you know, we essentially gave a vote back to the CI server saying yay or nay, right? And then, of course, um, it's up to, it's a policy decision whether or not, you know, if you have, you know, certain slaves failing, whether or not that blocks, you know, the the merge with trunk or not. But uh, uh that's very effective, and it also works really well inside uh, enterprises that might have different business units or departments or or such. Um, we used it within uh, uh, Hewlett Packard um, to uh, actually stitch together, you know, like the networking group and the software group and the storage group. Each of those had their own view of what would what was uh, necessary to pass uh, in, in the OpenStack components that they were worried about. And so we, you know, we set up different CI servers that they would, would vote back and, and, uh, and pass the information upstream. Okay, we've been talking about the development of OpenStack itself. And... Um, since we're drawing to the end of the conversation, I do want to zoom out a little bit more and talk about the usage of OpenStack. So with OpenStack's abstraction of a shared pool of resources, the developer gets this set of APIs exposed that gives the user, gives the developer access to compute and networking and storage and I'd love to discuss in more detail what the experience is like for the developer once these set of APIs, the set of APIs is exposed and and how can we leverage these APIs to build our systems? Uh, well, you know, that's, that's, that's the whole point of this, right? Um, the point of OpenStack isn't to build a system to be building the system, although sometimes I, I think we lose sight of that uh, when, when you're inside the project. The point of the system is to actually create an environment so that people can write applications, right? Um, and so, you know, the APIs that you're talking about that get exposed 
Um, the, the, you know, even the, the, um, platform services that get exposed, um, are all part of the, you know, kind of the, the tapestry that a developer will, will look at. Right. So, um, at the end of the day that the point around, um, uh, cloud and cloud deployments and, and, uh, platform as a service is, all around making that developer experience more uh, seamless um, and and really allow the developer to worry about the logic of his of his uh, system rather than you know gee have I set up the web server correctly or you know I you know what are the the credentials for the database th- those sorts of things. Okay, and perhaps. We should. There's one more technical topic that we haven't really uh, dove into, and we said we mentioned it earlier. Is the scheduler? What is the scheduler, and why is this relevant to the topic of OpenStack? Uh, so the scheduler is really the heart of OpenStack. You know, it's, it's the heart of any kind of distributed system, whether you're talking about grid or high performance computing systems. Uh, whether you're talking about containerized systems uh, with uh, schedulers like Kubernetes uh, or Mesos, um, what the scheduler is is it? Uh, it's a uh, it's an orchestrator that says, "Hey, I've been asked to deploy a certain workload. Um, where should I where should I put it?" Right, um, and uh, to some degree, it's you know kind of like. Uh, Am I going to deploy one instance? Am I going to deploy multiple instances? And if I deploy multiple instances, what are the rules for affinity and and uh, and non-affinity and, and things like that? But uh, it it really is the heart of the the compute infrastructure. The scheduler is is the thing that says you know here here's here's the request for running this particular program. Uh, where am I going to put it in the fabric? Uh, I'm going and you know, uh, typically there'll be a, a feedback loop, there'll be a monitoring loop, uh, or a, you know, call it a health check or whatever you want to call it, uh, so that if if in fact you know I've deployed as a scheduler, I've deployed this particular workload, uh, I'll know if it's in trouble, if it's died, um, and then typically. Um, Within cloud systems, all of the infrastructure is is what's called immutable. So instead of trying to fix something that's broken, we'll just um, you know shoot it in the head and deploy another one. And that remember earlier we talked about the fact that we can't count on virtual machines. Um, be you know they are ephemeral. You can't count on them being there uh, uh, all the time. And part of the reason is this, right? If if in fact we have to take this one out and put another one in its place, um, and you know hook it up to a load balancer, we will do that. Uh, the other uh, kind of scenario that that uh, comes into play here is uh, workload motion. So, for instance, if I have a particular server and I need to bring that server down, the first thing that I have to do is evacuate all the virtual machines and all the applications that are running on that to other parts of the system. And what will happen is, is that the notification will come back to the scheduler saying, Hey, I've got, you know, 27 instances of applications running here that you need to find another home for. And then the the scheduler will reschedule those, which allows us then to basically shut down uh, the virtual machines and applications on the server that's, that's going down for maintenance or whatever. So I'd love to close by kind of zooming out uh, further and projecting towards the future. You know, we've got all these different ways that we can do cloud computing at this point. We've got AWS, Azure, DigitalOcean, Rackspace, uh, anything using OpenStack. Um, How are these different platforms going to evolve over time and how should developers uh, assess this situation? That's a, that's a really great question, right? So, you know, what, what we've seen over the last few years is um, 
obviously a great expansion in some of the market leaders like Amazon and Microsoft Azure. Um, we've seen um, the, the guys at Google do some really great work. Uh, they're starting to turn their attention toward you know enterprise, which is which is new for them. Um, and you know, over time, I think that what we're going to see is is a couple of things. We will see, I think, continued competition amongst the big players, right? So, the players like that have you know cash in the bank, right? And they they want to control, you know, they want to build data centers, they want to be you know in the real estate power cooling business, um, and so we'll see continued expansion. Uh, you know, from Microsoft and, and Amazon and Apple and, and, you know, some of these other guys. Um, the second thing that we're going to see is competition in the vertical cloud uh, space. So uh, I, as a cloud service provider, it's going to be very difficult for me to really compete in this highly competitive, price-sensitive commodity business, right? But if I bring value and I... If I build a, a cloud that is targeted at a particular vertical, whether it be government uh, oriented, whether it be healthcare oriented, you know, whatever, whatever uh, uh, allows me to provide unique value uh, for particular uh, segments uh, of the market, I think that we will start seeing those verticals as well. Ultimately, uh, you know, I think that. What happens is, is that all this commoditization, the APIs over the top of them, the, the Amazon API or, or the OpenStack API over Rackspace's cloud, um, I, I believe that it, it's going to be subsumed, right? So just like today, uh, when I put my workload into a cloud, I don't know where it's running. I think in the future, I'll be able to put a workload into the cloud fabric and the fabric will be able to, through heuristics, algorithms, uh, uh, the evaluation of a lot of data, we'll be able to place the workload into an Amazon data center or a Microsoft data center or private data center, uh, depending upon the business policies that have been uh, defined. So I, I, my personal view, and this, this is what we're working on at Atomic, is to create that, that, uh, that world. Hmm. Yeah, that uh, sounds really interesting. I, so do you think it'll be like, so not to, I know we're up against time, but not to ask a big question, but uh, I'll just ask a big question. <laughs> um, do you think it's going to be like a polyglot cloud world where like I'm, I'm a big company and I've got um, my media cloud that runs on uh, maybe Netflix uh, data and, um, and I've got my machine learning running on uh, Google data center because Google is great at, you know, Google's great at machine learning platform mm-hmm. as a service. And maybe I've got storage on Amazon because Amazon is the, is best at that. Are we going towards a polyglot cloud world? Uh, I I believe that we're going towards that world, and, and uh, it'll be driven by by business policies and by uh, the features and configuration of the various clouds. So that when I say I've got this particular workload and it has these characteristics, maybe one of the characteristics is machine learning, right? Uh, the system will say, oh, I know that this should go toward Google, right, rather than Amazon. Or, you know, this is my dev test environment. Find me the cheapest place out there. Maybe it'll end up in a, on a digital ocean server someplace, right? So <laughs> <laughs> I, I do believe that that is, is uh, where the world's going. I'm very excited uh, about heuristic and algorithmic automation. I think it's really the third uh um, leg on the stool, right? So, so I, I think that the three legs are uh, traditional automation that we have today, uh, application release automation and data center automation. And that's been going on for several years, right? It started as like runbook automation and workload automation. Now we're doing a lot of DevOps things um, and atomic plays in that space. 
The second leg is the cloud native automation, really coming out of the PaaS world, right? So, uh, you know, if you take a look at Cloud Foundry, OpenShift, Heroku, um, that they they have a a really uh, rich ecosystem around the developers, um, and then they have opinionated automation, right, for the operators, right. So I, I see that those two worlds are going to be coming together sooner rather than later, and then of course the third leg is that heuristic or algorithmic. Uh, automation where it's non-deterministic, it's driven by policies. You basically tell you, you tell the system what you want, and the system is getting a load of data, right? You know, call it Internet of Things, from sensors, uh, telemetry data from servers and networks, and, and so on and so forth. And then it's able to say, hey, for this particular workload, let's put it here. You know, whether it be Google or let's put it in the the Cleveland, Ohio private data center that we have depending upon the, the characteristics of the workload and the availability of, of the uh, resources. Okay, well, that's a great place to close off. Where can people find out more about you, John? Uh, I would go to uh, www.atomic.com. You know, that's our website. And uh, I'm also on Twitter, at uh, John Per. Great. Okay, well, we'll put both of those in the show notes. John, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Radio and um, giving up some of your time to talk about OpenStack. This has been great. Uh, I've, I've had a great time. Thanks for having me on.